there. I'm Aaron Martell. And I'm Lou Figaro. And welcome to Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews, a podcast where we talk about and review a rock album of our choice. Joining us this episode is a first-time guest co-pilot. Dan Houston is here. Dan, welcome to the R4 Podcast. I'm excited to be here. Thanks. Absolutely. Also joining us is a returning guest co-pilot and fellow podcaster from the Gateway Music Podcast, Howard Mitnick is back. Howard, welcome back to the R4 Podcast. Oh, I'm so glad to be back. It's always a pleasure to, to join you and Lou. You guys are both great, and I really appreciate you giving me another kick at the can. Of course. It's great having Good you back. Have you back, yeah. All right. So this episode is the fifth part of an ongoing album series we're calling Shuffling Down E Street where we're reviewing the studio album catalog of Bruce Springsteen in the order the records were released. We even have special theme music for this series composed and performed by Matt Fleming. Thanks, Matt. And what that means is we're going to be reviewing Bruce's 1980 double album, The River. Dan, give us your Bruce Springsteen history and where you come in with The River. Um, In 1980, I heard um, Hungry Heart on the radio. Um, I think it was probably in the fall or winter, maybe around like November or December. I can't remember. Anyway, I, you know, I was eight. So I thought that the song title was funny at first, but then I, um, you know, I, I got into, you know, the keyboards and the backing vocals and I was really, you know, it was one of my favorite songs. Fast forward about two years, my sisters, I have two sisters that are older than me. And they were really into the No Nukes concert album. And there was a video. I don't know if we taped it off of HBO or anyway, they were watching it all the time. And then Bruce is a featured performer doing the, the title track of The River and that. And that really is what kind of got me into exploring more. And then, of course, about six months later, Born in the USA came out. And as you know, Bruce Mania kind of took over America. And I kind of went back from that point. And uh, started reviewing, you know, the rest of his albums, Born to Run and the early, the earlier stuff, the Asbury Park era stuff. I stuck with him probably about till 87 and then lost interest until I think the E Street Band got back together around 96. And I've been following ever since. So, All right. Cool. Howard, how about you? Well... Older sibling also uh, was my was my link. Um, I was 10. The river came out. My brother bought it. He had just gotten a cool stereo and we had moved into our basement. He and I were living in the basement. So I fell in love with Bruce Springsteen with the river. And I listened to three of the four sides of that album repeatedly for for about two years. I loved it. And when Born in the USA came out, uh, my brother bought that. I listened the crap out of that. And then the live compilation came out. That was intimidating and hard to to deal with. And then my tastes kind of changed and I moved on and I never really went back to Bruce Springsteen. So for me, Bruce Springsteen was, uh, you know, the albums from uh, Asbury Park to Born in the USA. And afterwards, it was just whatever sort of drifted through to me. So it's it, for me, Bruce is uh, is definitely a nostalgia project, but one that holds a lot of power. Okay. Lou, this is your first crack at Springsteen? Sure is. All right. I'm not sure when I first heard him. Probably the radio. Being a 10-year-old Jersey Shore kid in the mid-late 70s, I was, I was aware of him. I heard him on the radio, uh, but I wasn't really 
interested because I was kind of in a, into a different kind of music at the time, more hard rock. The stuff wasn't as heavy and I wasn't really drawn to it. At the time, I was more interested in what my friends or even my mom and uncles liked. And none of them liked Bruce Springsteen. They didn't hate him. They just never bought anything by him. So you could say I, I wasn't ever a fan just because I I never really heard a lot of stuff other than what was pumped out on the radio. So by the time the river came out, I was definitely aware of him, but I was firmly implanted in the, the mulleted Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, Black Sabbath, denim jacket, black concert, T-shirt, uh, jeans, engineer boots, you know, kind of Beavis and Butthead, teenage derelict. And uh, I was on the verge of discovering Judas Priest and Iron Maiden and Saxon like a year or so later. Bruce was just way off my radar. So the river kind of came and went for me at that time. I mean, shit, I think the wall came out that year, too. So the, the river came and went for me. Probably the only thing I've heard from it is the hits, which totally and completely worn out their welcome with me, thanks to just massive ear burn. If he comes on the radio, I usually turn to another station or better yet, throw something I want to listen to on. So that's that's where I'm coming in here. All right. Jersey boy hates Springsteen. Got it. Headline. <laughs> so quick recap. I became a Springsteen fan in 1984 with Born in the USA, like a lot of new fans did at the time. And by the end of 1986, after I got that huge live box set too, you were talking about Howard. I loved it. I just devoured it. And because of that, I just became a total Springsteen fanboy. So I had to collect his back catalog, and I can't pinpoint exactly when I got the river, but it would have been early to mid-87, because I know I was caught up to all of Bruce's albums by the time Tunnel of Love came out later that year. Now I'll give you some basic facts about this record, ripped straight from Wikipedia. The River is the fifth studio album and only double album by American singer-songwriter Bruce Springsteen released on October 17, 1980 on Columbia Records. It was produced by John Landau, Bruce Springsteen, and Stephen Van Zant, and was recorded from April 3, 1979 to May 9, 1980 at the Power Station, New York City, New York. It reached number one on the U.S. Billboard Top LPs and Tape Chart and is certified five times platinum by the RIAA. And here's the musician's lineup card. We have... Bruce Springsteen on vocals, electric 6 and 12 string guitars, harmonica and piano. Roy Bitten on piano, organ and background vocals. Clarence Clemens on saxophone, percussion and backing vocals. Danny Federici on organ. Gary Talent on bass guitar. Steve Van Zant on acoustic and electric guitars, lead guitar, harmony and backing vocals and Max Weinberg on drums. There are additional musicians which we'll mention as we see fit. And additionally, all tracks are written by Bruce Springsteen. Okay, let's shuffle down E Street once again and do a track-by-track -track analysis of this album. It's a double album, so we'll start with Disc 1, Side 1, and The Ties That Bind. Now you can't break the ties that bind. 
Dan, what do you think? I know originally that this was almost going to be the title. Um, it's a it's a good opener. It's a, it's pretty energetic, and it's got um, Stephen Van Zandt. You can tell that he was involved in the production. Him and Bruce have kind of like this Birds garage rock connection. Um, so the jangly Birds guitar is all over this. You know, it, it, and then it's got the kind of almost obligatory saxophone solo there. The last album was a little bit more of a live kind of stripped down affair. This is getting back to more of the Born to Run, more produced kind of Phil Spector type stuff. So I, I, I enjoy this. Um, I think it's a good way to open the album. Howard. Yeah, I mean, definitely. Uh, I think this is a very important song for the album. I think it lays out a lot of the major, the major theme, which is how we connect to other people and how those connections can be fruitful, but how and how but how they can also be damaging. Because you know, when you think about the ties that bind, it's like, does it mean the ties that bind one of us to the other, or does it mean the ties that bind us? meaning we're restricted by them. It's not clear, and it kind of works both ways. It is interesting that the song starts in second person, where he's talking to this kind of kind of difficult, damaged loner who doesn't want to rely on anyone and he doesn't want to owe anyone anything, you know? You've been hurt, and you're all cried out. But then as the song goes on, he joins that person. He changes it from second person to first person plural. He starts talking about we, you know? Connecting, baby, your heart to mine. We're running now, but darling, we will stand in time to face the ties that bind, like together, which is sort of interesting. Uh, and I think that that's really a lot of what this album is about. And like you, you know, like you mentioned, initially, uh, Bruce Springsteen, that was going to be the title of the first version of this album that had already been mastered, and it was a sole single album, and then he sort of pulled it back. But I still, I think there's a there's a good reason why he puts it at the front because this is going to be what all of these songs are about. People, you know, in, in in the previous in this previous decade, Bruce was really about people with passion who are going to fight and break themselves away. Like you know, Born to Run, Thunder Road. These are all narratives about escape. And now that Bruce is a little older, these are stories about the fact that you you can't really escape, even though you might want to, and you can still have good moments but there's too many ties so i think that kind of that's that's one that's probably why you put it at the front also i like the who's going to stop the rain reference you know there's a bunch of references to other other songs uh, other artists songs on this album and that starts also in the first song again Lou, they actually didn't didn't they release uh, i think i saw it on apple music they they released a a 10 song version of this and they called it the ties that bind and it gives you the original 10 uh, of that mix and then another like 22 songs of, of outtakes and things like that. I was actually going to dive into that, but I didn't have time. I hear that jangly guitar sound. It's got the Jersey bar band sound he's famous for. A million fucking guys up on stage. And oops, there. He opened his mouth. Yep, it's Bruce. He's got that unique style grunt of a tone in his voice akin to the constant state of constipation few can achieve <laughs> by the chorus. He sounds like someone came up behind him while he was singing and shook him. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Within a minute and a half, he does that trademark Springsteen. Whoa. I think I popped a hemorrhoid bone and 
I'm really wondering what I got myself into now. I see there's 19 more tracks after this. <laughs> oh, yeah, you're in trouble, dude. This comes straight out the gate as a classic Springsteen rocker to me from a foundational place of classic 50s and 60s rock and roll. Like we've all said, the guitars jangle. Gary Talent's bass is melodic and has lots of movement. Mighty Max Weinberg's drumming's muscular and high up in the mix. He's kind of the star of this one. He adds plenty of quick fills, and in the bridge, he brings some nice snare and tom syncopation to change the rhythm and pull you into Bruce's vocals. Big man Clarence Clemens blows a nice sax solo. He starts with long, drawn-out notes, and as it progresses, he bunches shorter notes together to build excitement for the higher key change that's coming. Springsteen himself sings with some urgency. His voice has that grit, that passion. Does he have a great voice? Well, like Lou said, no, not in the classic sense. Not like his hero Roy Orbison. But I would argue that like a Bob Dylan, he does have a way of communicating a lyric, especially his own lyrics, in a way that connects to you and makes you feel what he's feeling. And that's an innate gift that he instinctively deploys throughout his career. It's what often makes his songs so affecting, the way he presents them to you with his voice. Lyrically, Bruce is singing to a woman who's had a hard go of it with relationships. She's her. She wants to go on alone. But the narrator says he's different. He's willing to take her pain and her sadness. Where she goes, he'll go with her. She's just got to accept that their hearts are connecting, binding together. If she's willing to walk the line, he'll walk it with her. There are references to Johnny Cash and Creedence Clearwater Revival in the lyrics. You alluded to that, Howard. Bruce was never shy about referencing his influences. The backing vocals are nicely ragged. You can clearly hear little Steven's higher voice, and he is all over this album. I believe you also said that, Dan. I love this track. It's one of my favorite Springsteen album openers, though it's not my very favorite. I mean, come on. Thunder Road and Badlands were before this. But this might be number three for me. And this was the second song recorded for the album at the Power Station and was originally slated to be the title track of a 1979 follow-up album to Darkness on the Edge of Town. You guys mentioned that one, too. He pulled it at the last minute to develop this record. The next track is Sherry Darling. Howard, your thoughts. So first off, Bruce Springsteen has women's names in the names of his songs. And that's just, you know, he's going to do that. He's going to keep doing it. He's going to keep doing it. So this one's for Sherry, which also is the name of a song by another New Jersey band, Frankie Valli and the Four Seasons. Sherry, baby. And, and not surprisingly, we're going to a 50s sound with this song. Um, this is one of my favorite songs on the album. I was shocked to know that it was because when I started to listen to this for this podcast, I it did not think that was the case. And when I listened to it, I was like, oh, man, this one's so good. What's really nice about this is that it's really a kind of new, I'm not going to say a new version of a relationship, but it's a quite a nice relationship that 
this narrator has with Sherry and her mother-in-law. You know, these are the ties that bind. He's got a relationship with Sherry. He's got a relationship with his mother-in-law, unfortunately, as well. And he's got to navigate that. And, you know, he both imagines a scenario where where the mother-in-law wins, you know, tell her she wins if she'll just shut up. And he imagines a scenario where he's she's going to be walking. He's going to boot her out of the car. But we're still in a situation in the in the mythology of this album, in the structure of this album, where they're still in love. They're still connected. And they're trying to navigate these ties. They're trying to figure out how do we stay connected and in love when there are these other things that are just ripping us apart. It's a party song, though. So I don't want to make it's It's hand claps and shouting and hoots and hollering which is, you know, just a, a loads and loads of fun. Um, I give this song a big thumbs up because it's just, a, it's it's probably the most fun song on the album. Lou. Clarence Clemens starts this one off. It's decent sax hook. Trouble is it just sounds all like Eddie and the Cruisers for me. Maybe that movie wrecked this band for me. I don't, I don't know. Uh, or maybe it's because all of these songs kind of sound the same to me. It all becomes a wash and I'm never really compelled enough to dive deeper into, and to really listen to what he's saying. It, it all just sounds like nostalgia again, but I think that's, that's a blindness on my own part. The lyrics do tell a story about his girlfriend, Sherry and her lazy crackhead mama. <laughs> Bruce, he wants to do All he wants to do is kind of get his dick wet in the back seat, but he's got to drive the old lady around and get her welfare checks instead, and he ain't going to do it anymore. Fuck that. Right on, man. Dan. Um, yeah, like everyone has said before me, this is kind of a party song, and you can hear at the beginning, you know, with the cheering. Um, it's almost like they have a few hours here to, to have a good time before before reality is going to smack everybody back and when they have to go home and deal with the mother-in-law again overall you know this is again we're headed into the specter am radio type of uh thing that bruce is kind of fascinated with over throughout his career the uh the saxophone the you know the the piano uh it's not one of my favorite songs but i do catch myself every time it starts I'm like, oh, this again. But then by the by the chorus, he has me again. So that he has a talent with doing that throughout this entire album, I think. Clemens' bright saxophone intro ushers in this exuberant slice of old-timey rock and roll. And this time, the keyboard is step up to the fore. The organ sweeps provide a good-time summery atmosphere, and the piano is bouncy and paints the rhythm with bright colors. The bass finds a slightly sped up R&B groove, and there's a lot of R&B grooves on this album. And Weinberg lays back on those drums. Your ear falls right in line with that backbeat. These lyrics to me are funny. The narrator's driving, his girl Sherry's riding shotgun, and her mother's in the back seat. And like they do every Monday morning, he's got to drive Mama down to the unemployment agency, and he's sick of this shit. He's tired of listening to Mama yapping back there. He wants to take Sherry to the beach, but instead they're stuck in traffic. And he's like, fuck it, Sherry. She could take the subway back to the ghetto. Let's get out of here. And he sums it all up in the brilliant sing-along chorus. Well, I got some beer and the highway's free. And I got you and baby, you've got me. Hey, 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 what do you say, Sherry darling? I do have an issue with this track, and it's the crowd noise that's all over this whole thing. I wish that they'd only come in on the chorus and make it all rowdy. I mean, I understand that it's supposed to keep the energy and excitement high, but it does distract me. Not enough to make me hate on this, of course. I love it. That saxophone's not going to let my mood go down. This was the fourth single from the album that did not chart. 
The following track is Jackson Cage. Lou, lead us off. Well, I think they tried and succeeded uh, with going for like an empty Jersey bar sound on this. You know, that's the atmosphere that it creates for me anyway. The drums sound like you were walking by the bar on the street. They sound so far back. When I read the lyrics, I immediately knew that he was talking about Jackson, New Jersey, and he was likening it to a prison. It, it's a rural town. It's about 30 minutes away from me believe it or not, um, where he's from. And he grew up there and what's it, it's got small stretches of like nothing, but to tell you the truth, it ain't no slum. Uh, but anyway, let's go for it. Uh, go with it for the art spirit and imagine you're stuck working in it and want something better. Like a career as a rock star from New Jersey who hasn't had a real job in reality, no matter how much he can channel that guy. I can imagine Monster Magnet doing this same song and totally killing it. Here, it sounds like the street shit moaning to my tired ears. Ah, this song's for pussies who have the need for codependency. <laughs> Dan. Again, a song about being trapped, you know, being essentially in a prison that, like Lou said, of just monotony. The vocal performance is really, really, really great, especially heading into the chorus. You know, I, I, sometimes I forget actually what's how strong of a singer Bruce is. I know he gets a he gets a lot of a lot of shit for, you know, not being perfect, but he is quite a performer. And and you can really feel that as this song goes goes on. It's again, very garage band, very kind of bar bandy. Really, what stands out for me is his vocal performance on this. I really, I really like that a lot. Howard. So one of the pleasures of double albums is imagining what the single album would be if you could cut off songs. Which songs would you cut off? Well, Jackson Cage is definitely one of the, the serious contenders for get rid of this song. Uh, I think this is a really kind of generic Springsteen rocker. I think that the lyrics are not specific, a lot of cliches, a lot of sort of just vague kind of negative, you know, language, dream of a better world. Like, I mean, to me, this is a song that I would gladly, if I'm making my playlist on my streaming service, I, I make the playlist of this album and this Jackson Cage is never to be listened to again. That's a loser. So we get more boisterous, up-tempo rock and roll, beginning with that opening melody, combining organ and piano, and then bringing the jangle back to the guitar with more melodic bass and Weinberg pounding away on the skins. But this doesn't have the kind of uplifting spirit of the last track. There's an undercurrent of seriousness that the organ really underlines, and the harmonica solo is stark and reminds us that there's no saxophone in this. <laughs> Luke could talk about this better than me. He kind of did. Jackson, New Jersey, suburban town near Bruce's hometown of Freehold. 
And in this song, it's a prison, a metaphorical cage for our characters. And this is a theme Springsteen's so good at mining, the tired and defeated woman who just goes through the motions of life day after day, settling into a drudge of a routine that's all she knows. She doesn't even know she settled for it. She doesn't know anything else and doesn't know there can be anything else. Our boy does, but he's trapped in the cage too. Baby, there's nights when I dream of a better world, but I wake up so downhearted, girl. I see you feeling so tired and confused. I wonder what it's worth to me or you, just waiting to see some sun, never knowing if that day will ever come, left alone standing out on the street, to you become the hand that turns the key. It's that feeling of being trapped by life that Bruce expresses so well and resonates so deeply with me, personally. The next track is Two Hearts. Dan, what do you think? This is possibly my favorite Bruce Springsteen song ever. Um, I think it's got really outstanding drumming by Max Weinberg. It's a really great kind of pop, almost punk song. I know that Hungry Heart was originally written for the Ramones, and then they didn't give it to him. They could have given this song to the Ramones, and the Ramones would have had a hit. But of course, I'm you know obviously if they had done that, it wouldn't be on this album. When I hear that that Van Sant and Bruce harmonizing i mean that's like to me the pantheon of like mick and keith you know bruce and little steven i mean it's that kind of something very special about the about the way they sing together on this at the end i can't say enough good things about it i know you know this is one of the highlights of the album for me howard I agree with Dan. This is one of the highlights of the album for me, too. Um, I also agree that it's a great drum showcase for Max Weinberg and his fills. Um, it's a, got this great driving kind of circus organ sound from Federici and obviously the vocals. I, I agree with you. I think that, that Little Stevie does a great job of backing up, you know, Bruce. That's one of the highlights of the band in general, and it's it's definitely a, a good part of this song. But the best thing about this song is the hook. It's a, just an amazing hook. It's a great hook. The it's also totally fits with the theme of the album, which is we're seeing kind of like the positive side of like two hearts are better than one. You know, uh, if you can stay together when you're together, it's the greatest thing in the world when you're feeling connected, when that's that that's the dream, the dream that so rarely pays off for these characters as time goes on. But here we're in the moment we're in the, the rush of connection. Um, also of note it's the first time on this album that Bruce does his mister. There's one thing mister that I know. And and, and I'm kind of fascinated with the mister because, you know, he gives a lot of darlings. He gives a lot of babies. But what does it mean when you say mister? Like, what does it mean for the character? What are you saying about your person? You're talking to someone and you're talking to someone who you would refer to as mister. They're not your buddy. They're not your pal. There's a definite sort of social thing where Bruce puts his, his characters into lower 
socioeconomic status, lower position, and talking to this mister and be, being polite, but being clear that they're, they don't feel comfortable with that person. And it's a great move. He, of course, uses it a lot. And we're going to talk about, I'm going to talk about it a little later because he does it very effectively in a later song, too. He uses Mr. a ton in the next album, too. Yes. Lou. That was amazing, Howard. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Blowing me away, dude. <laughs> I listen. I listened to Bruce Springsteen a lot when I was young. I I used to sit with this album and I used to just burn through it. Like I'd play it. I turn it over. I play it. Not not side uh, D. Not the fourth side. I, I, those songs are are largely a mystery to me because I didn't like them at the time. But like this was my. You know, as much as the Beatles before them and then maybe Pink Floyd after, this was like the main thing for about two, three years was Born to Run and this album. I get that, just not with this guy with me. No, uh, totally. Yeah. I, I mean, also, I was a little kid. Like, I, yeah. like the truth is, now, when I listen, I, I respect these. He's what, what is, you know what's amazing about Bruce Springsteen, you listen to this album, is the hooks. There's just a lot of hooks. Like, I don't love his style. I don't love his sound. I don't really sort of, it doesn't really speak to me. I don't know if it's because I'm not American. Like, the sort of whole premise of, like, the working class thing, you know, you 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 alluded to it a little earlier is, like, he's not a working class guy. I think he is a working class guy, and I think it, he's a very hardworking rocker. Like, I mean, you know, like, he toured for years when 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 Darkness wasn't coming out, you know? He's, he's a hard worker for sure. But... It doesn't appeal to me. It doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't speak to me. But the hooks do. These, he's like, there's a lot of hummable songs, you know. As Dan was saying with like Sherry Darling, it's like by the end of the song, you can't not be be moved because it's just hooky. I get it. They're the hardest working band in show business, except Damn. the Clash. Except for the <clears throat> Clash. They sound like they're playing until they're they're on the brink of being physically exhausted. It's it's almost manic. Yeah. It. it Sounds like one of those two and a half hours into a three and a half hour show dripping with sweat numbers. This one, you know, playing like the mafia is going to kill you if you don't keep going kind of tunes. I got to give it to this band. They are tight and they are a, they are a very good band. Listening to his words, he's convincing someone that it's better to be in a relationship than not. Um You'll find a good person to spend some time with in time. Don't listen to the naysayers and two hearts are better than one. A bombastic drum fill brings on yet again another straightforward, punchy, up-tempo rocker. With the piano aping the guitar chords and then peeling off to add fills while the organ bounces along in a repeating pattern that runs throughout the track. I think you mentioned circus, Howard. Lyrically, the narrator gives advice to a crying girl fresh from a breakup. This guy who has a heart of stone and thinks he can whip the world alone. And ultimately, he's telling himself as well that he believes that there's someone out there for everyone. And being with that person together is better than going through life alone. And to prove his point, Springsteen sings the entire song together with little Steven. And that's kind of on the nose. The two hearts are better than one. It's the shortest track at 2 minutes 46 seconds and comes in, makes its point, and goes out on a hellacious Max Weinberg drum burst. The following track is Independence Day. can't touch me now, and you can't touch me now. 
Howard, how about this one? Well, this is another Springsteen motif, the daddy song. And, um, you know, it's uh, it's a good one. It is a little bit too saccharine for me, but I still can be moved by it. I had I have a dad, you know, I had a relationship with a dad that was complicated. What I like about this song is that it's, a, again, a little different than than the first decade of Bruce Springsteen. This is not a, a, a son who's re- rebelling. This is a son who's looking at his father and seeing what the world did to him, you know, and he's saying, they ain't going to do to me what I watched them do to you. This is, he's saying, I'm leaving and I'm going to be independent of you because I don't want the same outcome. And that's a, that's a sort of a more mature, older story, you know, than like Adam raised a cane where it's much more sort of uh, oppositional. Also, I think this song is a good is a good sort of like precursor for Born in the USA in that like Independence Day is like, oh man, Independence Day. But really it's kind of it's not about the holiday and it's not about independence really. It's actually a sort of a, a criticism of how the world, I'm going to say, and I think Bruce is meaning America, but how the world can really wear you down and how hard it might be to see your father being worn down or someone that you admire or someone you want to admire, at least being worn down. Uh, in terms of the music of it, it's kind of, it's nice. It's, it's kind of spare. It has that great, you know, Danny Federici just going off on this like spare kind of organ melody line. That's kind of beautiful. I give it a thumbs up, but it is a little too saccharine. Lou. This is the other Springsteen type song that he's got in his arsenal. Um, the slow brooding ballad and always a lesson breaking out from the chains of poverty and moving on to a better life. He's not going to let what they did. Howard said it to his father be done to him. He's not going to end up like that being stuck in a job, giving up your dreams to make ends meet, feed your wife and kids instead of being free to follow your dreams without anybody to depend on you. Independence day. Isn't the 4th of July. It's not patriotic. His independence is him getting the fuck out of Dodge, breaking out of that cycle that he sees happening in his old Jersey town, that old relationship, that dead-end job, that old life. He's also telling his dad that things are changing. People have different points of view now. There's atheists, gays, red wine with fish. God help me. Democrats. Um... You have to accept them. It's the new normal. Deep shit. I like this one. I think it's way better if Eddie Vedder sang it, but lately he's been even making me facepalm. But uh, it's a good tune. I like this one. Dan. As the other, the other guy said, uh, you know, it's a father and son song. You know, this continuing motif Bruce has of, of I'm going to get out of here. I'm going to leave. We can't, both of us can't coexist on under the same roof, even though it's not, it's not like a rebellious thing. It's, I don't want to turn into what you've turned, what you ended up as. Um, I think that, that it's going to foreshadow a couple of tracks later where we see kind of the consequences of people running away and what happens after that happens. 
I know this isn't a concept album, but you can kind of see that kind of, I need to get out of here. And then by the end of the album, you know, what happens when you do run away? Um, Does it really solve anything? Great piano. And uh, I think it's great interplay between Bruce and the piano player. And not many, you know, not many artists can pull stuff like this off the way Bruce does. I think this also kind of shifts the album as we're moving into kind of heavier territory from here on, um, at least for the next couple tracks. Okay. There are a few tracks on this record that cut me to the core. I mean, absolutely got me. And this is one of them. The intro is an acoustic guitar passage with an organ melody over the top that almost sounds like a whistle that takes us to a slow rolling, somber number that highlights the brilliance of the professor, Roy Bitten, not to be confused with our own Professor Ray Permi and his stellar piano playing. He knows when to fill the space with a moving fill or just play along to and augment the melody. He weaves throughout the song and captures the emotional vibe of the tune. The drums utilize rim shots on the backbeat and the snare on the chorus. Nice touch. And the big man delivers a brief, wistful sax solo. Now, the only voice you hear is Springsteen's, and that's important because this song is very autobiographical and is basically Bruce singing to his father. The young boy's grown into a man now, and it's time for him to leave the house. Bruce's father, Douglas Springsteen, suffered from mental illness, and he had quite a contentious relationship with his son as Bruce grew up. And Bruce knows what he's got to do. Now, I don't know what it always was with us. We chose the words, and yeah, we drew the lines. There was just no way this house could hold the two of us. I guess that we were just too much of the same kind. I always bristled when anybody compared me to my father. I heard it all the fucking time growing up, and I wanted to get away from that house and get away from him. He wasn't abusive. He was just non-existent for most of my adolescence, and I told myself that I wanted to be nothing like him. So when I was younger, this song hit me because I connected to the part of because the darkness of this house has got the best of us and there's a darkness in this town that's got us too. And they can't touch me now and you can't touch me now. They ain't going to do to me what I watched them do to you. Turned out I would have many Independence Days with my dad over the years and imagine my surprise as I got older and I discovered that I'm a lot more like him than I thought and it dawned on me that we just never understood each other. And never could. There are things we just don't talk about. We're men. You don't talk about that shit. And my life ended up eerily mirroring his in a lot of ways. So when this song comes on and I hear Bruce sing at the end, so say goodbye, it's Independence Day. Papa, now I know the things you wanted that you could not say. But won't you just say goodbye, it's Independence Day. I swear I never meant to take those things away. It touches something deep within myself that I know I'll never get to express. Not to him. So let's flip the imaginary record over and drop the imaginary needle on side two and Hungry Heart.
Lou, you like this one? <laughs> After the nostalgia is here, it sounds like something written from the 50s. Do, you know, the doo-wop group, uh, more than a 70s rock star. The production on this is what really irks me, as it sounds like a tray of silverware being dropped down the stairs. After this record, it was way more prevalent in the catalog, I think. The sound, the sort of Phil Spector, Wall of Sound-ish kind of in its execution. The effect it has on me is to just immediately hit the skip button. I can't stand this fucking song. From the irritating instrumentation to Bruce's grunting howl of the chorus just reminds me more of wailing cats in heat or town hobos caterwauling over a burning garbage can sharing a bottle of Thunderbird. I, I consider myself a non-believer, but if there is a hell, this song would be on the playlist that constantly played while I was sleep-deprived by shock for an eternity. <laughs> Dan. Well, you know, following that up is going to be fun. But uh, <laughs> this is the first, obviously, the first Bruce Springsteen song I ever heard. I, I totally get where Lou's coming from. Um, this has been played to death. And on the other side, I know that the four guys in the Ramones, till the time they died, were upset that this song was written for them. Um, it could have been their hit. And it was held back by Bruce's manager, um, obviously, because it was going to be a hit for him. But um, I always hear this now and I go, Joey Ramone's hitting himself in the head going, that's my hit. You know, I was, what, eight, nine in 1980. There were a lot of men who during that recession were losing it. The guy in the song goes out for a drive and just keeps going. You know, I mean, that was not something that was that was happening. And particularly in that time and for that to even resonate with me as an eight year old. I think he really tapped into something that something was going wrong. You know, again, the Spectre production is, you know, it's, it's a little old at this point, but I, I nostalgia wise, I still like the song, but I, I understand why people are burned out on it. Lyrically though, I do think that they're, that he really hit on something here. It still resonates with me today. So. Howard. So I guess I'm, I'm more team Lou on this one. Um, I even when I loved this album, I didn't really love this song. First of all, the the sax, this farting sax sound is is kind of just makes me laugh every time. <laughs> um, it has a plodding beat. It got a great snare sound, but the beat is kind of like that sort of mid tempo-y kind of fake, like aggressive kind of sound that that they often got into. In terms of just for Dan, like, you know, the Ramones were not going to get a hit from this. The Ramones could not get a hit. Like, you know, how many amazing songs did they put out? None of them were hits. So this wouldn't have been hit. I think this was better served with Bruce because he did get a hit out of it. What a great, crazy first line. Like, just, you know, he says it so matter-of-factly that it doesn't, it, it, it takes, like, multiple listens for it to land. Like, got a wife and kid in Baltimore, Jack. I went over a ride, never went back. I was just like, what? You know, it's... That's an outrageous thing to just sort of like say. He doesn't. He doesn't kind of excuse himself. He doesn't explain. This just. That's just the premise, you know. Also, I when I was a kid, I thought Baltimore Jack was a place. Like I thought there was Baltimore <laughs> and there was Baltimore Jack. 
<laughs> the other thing that's really important about this song, because I do really think about this album, you know, Dan said it's not a it's not a concept album. It's not a concept album, except it kind of is a concept album because it's so thematically driven and because the the river runs through this album. And this is the first reference of the river, you know, he like a river that don't know where it's going. I, I took a wrong turn and I just kept going. Now I, I think that Bruce got a little either either I don't understand the song so well or Bruce kind of lost the, the metaphor a bit because I'm, I don't really understand what's happening in the song when he's in the Kingstown bar and he meets that girl that is that his wife that he he ditched or is this another girl I think it's another girl and if so this river is not just going in a straight line it's circling back and keeps repeating itself he's just moving forward but it's still the same story of just having a relationship and moving on, having a relationship and moving on. So anyway, this here's the river. We're learning about it. Uh, we're going to learn more about it as time goes on. And uh, that's my story about Hungry Heart. Well, like you, Dan, this is the first Springsteen song I ever heard, frequently on the radio in 1980. I loved it as a 10-year-old, and I still love it now. To me, it sounds like an upbeat, mid-tempo pop rock tune. The piano's percussive. There are dinging glockenspiel notes. The organ wheels and deals, and Danny Federici even gets to solo on the organ, and it sounds bright and poppy. I actually dig those low saxophone farts that sort of <laughs> double the bass line and the excellent ah uh, backing vocals featuring Flo and Eddie, a.k.a. Howard Kalin and Mark Volman from both the Turtles and Frank Zappa's band. Once more, recall a simpler, bygone era. But this is one of those songs that Springsteen misdirects the listener because lyrically, this is anything but happy. Right from the first couplet, like you said, Howard got a wife and kids in Baltimore. Jack, I went out for a ride and never went back. And our dubiously motivated narrator finds a girl in Kingstown, and that doesn't work out. But somehow he still concludes that everyone wants to have a home and not be alone. Well, maybe you should have thought about that before ditching the family, dipshit. Bruce's voice is slightly sped up, so he sounds like he's singing higher to complete the deception, and that works especially well in the impossibly catchy chorus. On the live 1975-85 box set, when the band plays this, Springsteen lets the crowd sing the entire first verse straight through the first chorus before the E Street Band takes over. And when I saw the band live, my one and only time, as I've said on the podcast many times in 2012, they kicked into this and I got excited. And sure enough, the crowd sang the first verse and chorus into the night sky. One of so many memorable moments from that show for me. Famously, as we've said, Springsteen wrote this for the Ramones. Joey Ramone asked Bruce to write a song for them. But when manager producer John Landau heard this, he said, nope, stop giving away your good songs. And Bruce kept it. And this was the first single from the album that reached number five on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100 chart, his first top ten hit. The next track is Out in the Street. Dan, let's have it. You know, this song would not be out of place on Born to Run, in my opinion. It's got that, again, big production, working class hero anthem lyrics. 
The one thing that that's a little bit different, and I, this might just be me because I'm weird. There is a, a keyboard break briefly that sounds exactly like a damned song that came out exactly around the same time. Now I know Bruce is not, that's not his thing, but I do know that he was very aware of all the different kinds of music that were going on. And it's interesting to me the way that he incorporates kind of the new wave punk sounds that are going on a little bit into his formula. Overall, I like it. It's not one of my favorite songs on the album. I do like that keyboard break just because it's a little different. Yeah, Bruce was a fan of the early punk scene, Dan. So yeah, that that stands to reason. He probably was aware of that. He's kind of notorious for always kind of having, I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't know it, but he always is aware of what's happening. In the early 90s, he was very aware of what was going on up here, which he was a huge star, you know, so he's a, a, someone who loves music on top of everything else and takes, still continues to take influences in, I think. Yeah, I remember when I, um, when I started to mature musically and I fell in love with Velvet Underground and Lou Reed and I was listening to Street Hassle, the Lou Reed song, and in the middle of this song about like junkie's girlfriend dying in a party and having to dump the body, like suddenly Bruce Springsteen is just referencing Born to Run, like actually the lyrics of Born to Run in the middle of the song. I was like, what is going on? Spoken word. Yeah, yeah, yeah incredible. Howard, your thoughts? Yeah, my thoughts about Out in the Street. Okay, so I like this section of the album, you know? I like these are sort of the I like this. This is like Bruce being a little a slightly little bit more contemporary and slightly sort of less mannered and melodramatic. And this one's Out in the Street and I do agree it could be on Born to Run. And certainly there are some funny things like he's referencing the Easy Beat song uh, Friday on My Mind. He says, "And Monday when the foreman calls time, I've already got Friday on my mind." And then I'm going right to that song and I'm like, "That's a cool trick." you're pulling you know he, he these are a lot of great references i think my one of my favorite things about this is just that great pre-chorus into the live sounding chorus like that the the you know it just gets me every time you know it's so it, it makes me want to join the gang <laughs> bruce's gang you know i'm gonna i'm gonna move to east street and i'm gonna get out in the street um <laughs> also the great organ washes at the end are good i i like that too lou bruce he's singing about how he's out on the street and what he does and how he's comfortable doing it in his community and they make him feel warm and, and accepted. And is this the same town he wants to get away from so bad? I mean, it sounds pretty nice. Jesus Christ, Bruce, make up your fucking mind. Do you like it here? Or do you want to leave? Sound like you're hard to please. <laughs> in all seriousness, it's a, it's an okay tune. I kind of like this one too. Yeah. It's yet another upbeat mid-tempo tune. The piano features high notes that make the main melody memorable, and there's an easy swing to the drums that make you bob your head. The start and stop pre-chorus, like you were saying, Howard, it adds a little oomph to the tom hits, and it builds the drama, with both the piano and organ percussively building up the tension to the big release of the chorus with its liberating oh-oh-oh-oh-oh vocals. Lyrically, the narrator is a blue-collar worker, busting his ass at work all week, looking forward to the weekend when he can take his girl out on the street and on the town to party with the people and feel a part of the community. Because when he's out, his troubles vanish, she comes alive, and he feels a release as much as we the listeners do in the chorus. Clemens plays a short sax solo that follows a vocal melody, and this is just another one of many songs on the record that just kind of sweeps you up in the joy and catharsis of good time rock and roll. The following track is Crush On You. Crush On You. 
Howard, hit us. Okay, so if you had asked me, Aaron, before I started listening to this album for this podcast, what's going to be the song you like listening to the most, you think? I, I don't even think I would have remembered The Crush on You was on the album. Um, but I love this song. And, and it betrays the fact that I like the Rolling Stones a lot more than I like the E Street Band. And this is a Rolling Stones song. That, I, mean, I think it's actually consciously a Rolling Stones song. The guitar sounds like Keith. The back of vocals sounds like Keith. Bruce is doing his best Mick Jagger imitation in terms of his vocal delivery. It sounds like this song is off of Some Girls, like period, full stop, you know? And it's great. I also love the live, the live clapping that just give, it adds to the party atmosphere. This is the most contemporary song on the album. It sounds like it's coming from the late 70s, which is as close as I think we get, you know? And uh, I loved it, and I love it, and I'm really glad that I did this podcast, if only because Crush on You is now my favorites list. All right. Lou? Every song. Pa-pow! Ba-da-bang! Da-da-da! They should mix all his crash in intros into one song. <laughs> Slow it all down. It'd be like doom metal. <laughs> Brucey's thirsty. Trying to date out of his league. He's crushing hard, sounding creepy. Sounds like a stalker. First he following her car, then he's scoping her out across the room. She outclasses him and he's all hot and bothered. Get a grip, dude. Just remember, no matter how good she looks, somebody's sick of her shit. Save your money. Get the fuck out of this town. Remember your goals. She's not a goal. Dan. Um, I had on my notes again, Stonesy Blues bar band song. I like the Stones doing this better than the E Street Band. Um, and it actually reminds me a little bit of a class song with the same name that I also like better than this. But, you know... I bet in a live setting, this works really well. Um, they're good at what they do. It checks all the right boxes to get the crowd moving in, you know, in between, you know, some of his heavier stuff. So, you know, it's fine. It's not one of my favorites, though, on that record. This track gets shit on by many Springsteen fans as the worst tune on the album, but I don't feel that way. I'm on the same page as you guys. The intro is set up with snarling guitar licks and you feel it gearing up. And then Talent's bass slide pulls us into a meaty Rolling Stones-ish hard rocker that brings the energy, swagger, and even hand claps. Bruce shouts out the vocals as he's crushing on a girl. And who is she? Well, he doesn't know who she really is. She might be a Rockefeller heiress, a waitress, or a bank teller. But that doesn't matter when she's so fine. She's a walking, talking reason to live. It's not deep and it's not supposed to be. It's a shot in the arm with another sing-along chorus. Ooh, ooh, I got a crush on you. And Van Zant answers with the coolest shit. Ow. Fuck the haters. The big man's honking that sax all over this thing and I'm a sucker for it. And this track. The next track is You Can Look But You Better Not Touch. Lou, you going to touch it? 
You bet. <laughs> There's never been a more Jersey opening line than yesterday. I went shopping, buddy, down to the mall. <laughs> and I bought some scratch offs and I told them on it all. Yeah. <laughs> this is a tolerable rocker. Sort of like, it sort of sounds like Elvis Costello. He, he touched on Ramones. We, we've been touching on the Ramones the, the whole night. Um, but he touched on the Ramones and New Wave flavored punk a few times here so far. I hear the late 70s New Wave influence on his stuff. Dan was talking about the last, um, on the last few tunes. It's very far removed from Jersey's bar scene that he started in, though. Decent tune, though. Dan. An Eddie Cochran, Rockabilly kind of rave up song. Everyone's hassling him. He goes to try and buy something and he gets hassled. They can't. He sees a girl on TV, wants to date. He knows there's no chance that's happening. Just very angry at the kind of the world. And I think a lot of people can can relate to uh, to being in that position where you feel like you can't get anything you want. And, you know, I like this song. It's kind of like a, similar to Two Hearts in terms of structure, but I don't like this quite as much, but it's still, it's a, it's a good rock song. Howard. Right off the bat, it's, it gets a 10% boost for me because I like it when songs have the t- part of the title that is in parentheses is longer than the title. That's always, it's always good to me parentheses <laughs> in general. So it's like, you know, <laughs> it's just good. Good. The other thing is, so yeah, it's another up-tempo party song. Like this is like you know, the the album is like f- just feeling its young man oats. As, you know, the second side. It's the, this is it. This is all the 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 ones where like the things are not complicated. And here's another one that's kind of not complicated. It's just feeling. But uh, the one thing that I thought was funny was again, I haven't heard this song probably you know since 1987 or something, and um, I had melded this song in my mind with Running on Empty by Jackson Brown. Like, you know, like you can, the chorus is like, you can look, but you better not touch. And like Running on Empty is running on, running on empty. It's like this, they're the same song in my mind. And I think it's just me because when I actually sit down and listen to what the song is, it's not. But it's just a weird sort of memory thing where I, I had layered one of the songs on top of the other. It's weird. Anyway, uh, it's a great party vocals, you know, backup vocals. You better not like that. You better not uh, back up is great. I give it a thumbs up, mild thumbs up. This speeds up the tempo and the guitars have a bit of Southern rock rockabilly twang to them with that constant kick drum and propulsive bass, making it feel like it's flying along. Springsteen and Van Zant again, bring the energy to the vocals. And this time our man's frustrated. No matter what he does, wherever he is, he's always spurned. Whether he's at a store, knocking over a lamp, watching a pretty girl wiggling on his TV screen, or especially when he finally gets Dirty Annie out to the lover's lane and they're interrupted before anything can really happen. Shit, his life is a constant look-but-don't-touch scenario. I really had to debate with myself on which track I'd have to cut from the album because i got to follow my own rules And it came down to this one. Dan, we're on the same page. This is kind of similar to Two Hearts for me, and I prefer Two Hearts too. I'm not hating on this. It's just that there's other tracks similar to it on the record that I like better. So I guess that makes this Aaron's Stinky Stinker. The following track is I Want to Marry You. Lonely life for wicked 
Dan, what about this one? Almost kind of a church gospel type of arrangement. Um, for a second, it sounds like maybe like a like he's going south of the border or something with the kind of Buddy Holly's slow kind of ballady R&B from the 50s. You know, that works really well. Um, the lyrics are about, obviously, he wants to, he sees this girl and he wants to protect her and marriage is going to be the answer to everything. Um, just kind of idealizing what, how wonderful things will be and how we can run away and get married and, and I'll take care of you. I think considering what's coming up next, um, I think this, this was placed here for a reason. Overall, it, it's a nice break from the last couple of songs, I think. Howard. So, um, you know, for me, the big debate would be which one would be my stinky stinker stinker. And it was probably Jackson Cage or I Want to Marry You. And I probably would choose I Want to Marry You. I mean, this this one is charmless to me. It's like reheated Sherry Darling. It's another 50s pastiche. It's overly sentimental. And with, for saying that about a Bruce Springsteen song is really saying something because he can really be very sen- overly sentimental. He gives us some babies. He gives us some darlings. There's good organ at the end. But, like, I don't ever have to listen to this song again. Lou. I hear a ballad coming on and oh God, this one's going to get played at every fucking wedding for the cringeworthy first dance every Jersey couple's going to (laughs) do. Yeah, honey, that's original. Even the wedding band rolls their eyes when brides pick this kind of shit. It's got the derivative chord structure that mimics a couple of other Springsteen classics that make this sound like rehashing of something else he's written than it, he had a better idea for lyrics. I, I'm not versed enough in his music to call out a specific song, but rest assured it, it had something to do with the Jersey Shore and finding a heartbreak or leaving town. Mercy. Fucking mercy. The rhythm section plays a slow R&B-influenced groove with rim shots in place of snare cracks. Kind of recalls old Motown in a lot of ways. The organ has that romantic seaside carnival vibe. The guitars are back in the mix and have a warbling Leslie speaker sound. And the piano, as always, ties everything together and fills in the gaps. Springsteen puts a little tenderness and a little soul into his vocals. And the lyrics tell the story of a man in love with a single mom of two kids and his desire to make her his wife. He doesn't want to follow in the footsteps of his father, who died lonely and brokenhearted. And though he knows he's not perfect, he knows true love can't be a fairy tale and he can't make her dreams come true but he's willing to put in the work to help her dreams along. He's realistic about it. Clemens sax provides soulful accompaniment. The ah backing vocals recall an earlier era, and this just kind of breezes by, cooling off the record after all the rockers that preceded it. This was the third single only released in Japan. So those Japanese are dancing to this one at their weddings. (laughs) The next track is the title track, The River. Howard, how about this one? 
Well, listening to this song really make I had one important question, which is, what is a wedding coat? <laughs> I have no, I mean, like, I didn't, that's not a term that exists, but he got a wedding coat. I don't know. Um, okay, so... You know, this is the title track, so it it certainly draws attention. He decided to call the album The River, and this song is The River. And, you know, River just keeps on flowing, and we see the the power of time passing in this song, and we see the impact of the, the sort of beautiful, young, tanned, wet lover's and what happens to their love. And it's it's rough. I do think, like, uh, unlike Hungry Heart, which I've heard a million times, and The River I've heard a million times, this one still holds up to me. There's some really powerful lyrics. Like, Hungry Heart does have the great lyric of I went, the opening lyric, but it's the most powerful lyric on the album, I think, is, then I got Mary pregnant, and man, that was all she wrote. Like, it is quite spare, it, really effective. It really does, it is a mic drop. It's like, right. It, that tells you a whole universe, tells you everything about the universe. He got her pregnant. She wasn't going to get an abortion. They were going to get married, and that's it. And, um, and now those memories haunt him. And this is, uh, I think, the thesis statement that goes along with the ties of the bind, which is that the, all of those lovers and rebels that Bruce Springsteen was has been documenting for a decade – it doesn't go well usually. Even the the lovers with the best intentions, things fall apart and the memories haunt you. And I don't the one thing about the song that I don't love is actually the last line. I don't actually understand what he means by is a dream a lie if it don't come true or is it something worse? It just kind of sounds kind of good but when i try to break it down i, I can't do the math on what that actually means so th- that it loses something for that uh, to me it's a great song it's spare it's clean starts with harmonica and guitar builds and adds sl- beautifully and slowly and you know we got the misters we got a mister in the first verse we got a mister in the third verse um it's t- that also informs what this song is about this is low socioeconomic folk who are ground down by the world and their love gets ground down too. Lou. Ah, uh, he broke out the harmonica. I wondered when he would finally remember he had it. I can feel a depressing Bruce Springsteen introspective ballad coming on again. A melancholy tune reminiscing about how he knocked up old Mary down by the river, so he did the right thing by abandoning any hopes he had and tying himself <laughs> financially to the person he's now biologically bound to for life. Despite all modern contraceptive conveniences that were made available to the young couple, he decides to spray and pray inside his one true love. Now he's stuck in a loveless marriage, working a shitty job that doesn't pay him enough, and old Mary doesn't give a shit about him. He's a fucking meal ticket. Put down that stupid guitar! Go out and work, you lazy bastard! We need diapers and formula! Should have taken Uncle Neil's advice and shot her down by the river and moved to fucking Canada. <laughs> now I'm depressed. Thanks, Bruce. Thanks, boss. Thanks a fucking lot. Dan. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> um, I like this song more than Lou. Um, <laughs> I think it has um, the harmonica at the beginning I actually kind of like. It's the way he raps 
lyrically that this guy's life has been all been going good. He's what, 18. He's going to probably graduate from high school. And then, you know, probably in the course of two or three days, his life is now, he's now stuck in this town. Not only that, he gets a job, he gets a union job and then the economy crashes. So he's stuck married with a kid in a town that he can't leave with, you know, no, uh, no stable form of income. It helps you remind you that this guy's life probably peaked when he was 17, which is, you know, obviously that's depressing, but that is something that actually was Bruce's sister. Apparently her personal story is with her husband is somewhat similar to what's described in these lyrics. So I think he really tapped into into that, you know, all his characters that are trying to get out, some of them aren't going to get out and they're going to end up stuck and it's not going to be, not going to be pretty. I think this is a really effective song. It might be depressing, but it's effective and it's very true to anyone who's lived in a small town and has known people that have had suddenly had all their options taken away from them. (sighs) All right. I cannot listen to this song when I'm drunk because it makes me cry. You're first drawn in by that whining, haunting harmonica lick that reappears later in the track and is instantly recognizable. Musically, it starts folky with a simple acoustic guitar, but it builds into a country-ish folk ballad that once again features the piano as a dominant sonic component, and even as it builds up later on with the drums and organ, the vibe is muted, completely stripped of bombast. And that's because the focus of this track is on the lyrics and vocals. You were right, Dan, yes, the song was inspired by Springsteen's sister Virginia and her early life, but it's told from the perspective of his brother-in-law, Mickey, her husband, though the narrator in the track isn't actually named. He comes from the valley, where the people live out the same existence, generation after generation, like your daddy done. He meets Mary in high school, they fall in love, and to escape their town and their dull, predictable lives, they drive out of the valley and go swimming in the river, which to him is a symbol of hope, of his dreams. Then he knocks Mary up, and it all goes to shit. Yeah, man, that was all she wrote. They quickly get married at the courthouse, but it's not a happy occasion. It's a duty. No wedding day smiles, no walk down the aisle, no flowers, no wedding dress. So what do they do? Go back to the river, their happy place, still young and hopeful. Then harsh reality sets in. The narrator can't find work and he falls into despair. And it soon becomes evident that life will be a constant struggle. And soon the couple basically gives up. Now all them things that seem so important, well, mister, they vanished right into the air Now I just act like I don't remember, and Mary acts like she don't care. But he does remember. He remembers how magical the river was, and how the best times of their lives were spent there. I know these people. I witnessed it in my own family. I became this fucking guy. When you wonder how it got to this point, and your life didn't turn out the way you thought it would, and you feel broken and defeated, and then the despair eventually turns to apathy. You don't care anymore. But the truth is, it hurts. Because you can recall those times, how great they were, even as they fade from your view. But this next part of the song is where I'm chilled to the bone. Bruce's voice cracks as he sings, Now those memories come back to haunt me. (laughs) They haunt me like a curse. Is a dream alive that don't come true? Or is it something worse? 
and the narrator and Mary go back to the river. But the river's dried up, just like their hopes and dreams. The memories now won't be pleasant anymore. They're open wounds that will never heal. This is so powerful and heartbreaking and very different for Springsteen and that the little glimmer of hope he often puts in at the end of his darker tunes, it's absent here. It's gone. Sometimes the story doesn't have a happy ending and this song points in the direction his next album will take. And there are a few tracks that, that do that. This is a top five Springsteen song for me, probably top three. Shit, sometimes it's my very favorite. It connects to me on such a deep personal level. You know, music is my river, my happy place, my well of hopes and dreams. And I share it with people who are closest to me. And now I've been sharing that with you, the listeners, with this podcast. I'm very grateful that you chose to dive in with me. And may this river never dry up. This was the fifth single only released in Europe. So let's switch out Imaginary Disc 1 for Imaginary Disc 2 and drop the Imaginary Needle on side 3 and point blank. Tomorrow's fallen number You number one by one You wake up and you're dying You don't even know what's from Well they shot you point blank You've been shot in the back Lou, what do you say? I like the way this starts. That bass line and piano give a different feel than almost the rest of the record. It's got a country flavor deep down. I guess the boss is thinking what I was thinking on the last tune, and it's got a dark cinematic narrative of a broken relationship and life's broken promises. This is bleak stuff. I'd listen to this again. His voice, while still definitively Bruce, he, he doesn't have that shit in his pants howl that I can't seem to get used to. He tells a good story here. I like this one. I can hear Tom Petty doing this justice, too, or even Chris Robinson. Inversely, the lead up to the chorus reminds me of Alice Cooper's Poison. And that's in no way a compliment for either song, no matter how different they may be from each other. Dan. I've always wondered whether this was based on the movie Point Blank, which is like a weird revenge fantasy, but it, the lyrics don't seem to match up with that, so I'm probably wrong. You know, kind of another tale of teen romance that has turned out not well. The character that he's writing about is 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 a working girl, which I've, whether or not that's somebody who's just a, a waitress or in his, his collecting welfare, or, you know, which he also mentions, or if it's She's in another profession. I, I've never quite been sure, but things are not good for this woman. Just another character sketch of a character who from, you know, when, when you think of like Born to Run and those people that are going to get away from town and, and, and escape everything, sometimes those people end up drifting back and, um, and end up in situations like uh, are described in these last couple songs. Um, I really, really, really like the piano on this, too. I think that really stands out for me. Howard? This was one of my favorite songs back in the day. I listened to this over and over and over again. 
I still really love the music and arrangement. I think the rim shot to start off, the twinkling piano, as you said, the organ washes, his vocal performance is restrained in a way that's kind of really pleasing. The content um, is thematically still on point. It's a not, like you said, it's another story of a, you know, a potent, lost potential of a possible couple and connection. However, this has not dated well, uh, you know, shooting her in the face, not great. Um, and unlike the river where they were both complicit and they're both being laid out as partners in the dysfunction in this one, it's like, she was hard done by, and like this guy is like Teflon. Like, who the hell? We have no idea what this guy is. Why is he's you know where he's not at all complicit? So the content I sort of got lost on Lou. I totally. It's funny when you were talking. I didn't want to say it when you were talking about the river. I was like, yeah, you got your song. It's point blank. But the muse, the the song is great. Like, it's just the lyrics kind of suck. Fucking a boss. You keep pouring the heavy shit on us. So I got to give it up for Gary Talent. That bass line moves all over the place on top of that plaintive beat, once again serving up rim shots in place of the snare. Bitten's piano once again does the heavy lifting, but he's not overpowering you. He keeps it subdued and moody with the guitars and organs supporting the pensive atmosphere. Now for all of Bruce's vocal limitations, he sure can give you emotional sensitivity. And here we're still grappling with working class struggles, lives going nowhere, carrying over from the last track. But this time the narrator wonders about a lost love. If she still prays that life will get better from the trap life she's always lived. As a young girl, she came from a rough home situation. And there was a time when our boy wanted to be a Romeo. He wanted to save her. He dreams of those days when they're together dancing at the club and he never wanted to let her go. But he wakes up and the reality is those dreams and promises are shattered. Shot point blank through the eyes and the heart. She lives a miserable existence on welfare and doesn't even acknowledge him when he sees her on the street and calls out to her. It's another crushing but affecting character study. And this was also the seventh single from the album, only released in Europe. The following track is Cadillac Ranch. Dan, what do you say? This song has been covered a lot of times. I've heard it. I think Warren Zevon maybe did it. And I just have complete ear burn off of it. Um, it for what it is, it's, it's a, you know, it's a good kind of rockabilly kind of stomper. But I've heard it so many times done by people that aren't Bruce. I don't know if that's ever happened to you guys that it just kind of has taken away what I really liked about it to begin with. It's not one of my favorites. If I could cut a song off the record, it'd probably be this. That said, it's still pretty good. I mean, this is a this is a pretty awesome album. So um, even the ones I don't like quite as much, I still enjoy. Howard. Okay, Cadillac Ranch. So when I was younger, I really liked the song. It's fine. It's a good rocker. My, I have a quibble. 
um, there are so few guitar solos on this album. And actually, it makes me even think about like the whole E Street dynamic where like they have all of these tools for solos. It's a piano, the organ and the sax. And like there's no lead guitarist. They're both rhythm guitarists, you know. But here we get a we get a solo. And then like after the first chorus and then like you know, the big man just does the same solo with the sax after the second chorus. It's like, they couldn't even let him have, they couldn't let them have one guitar solo, you know, it's, it's kind of funny. Um, I think it's fine. It's a good rocker. I think what's kind of crazy and weird and got distracted about is that like, you know, there were three really big double albums that came out within about a year of each other. There was this, there was London Calling and there was The Wall. And on London Calling, there's also a Cadillac song, and it's also a rockabilly-inspired song. So it was really a zeitgeist thing going on because, you know, Brand New Cadillac, which I like better than Cadillac Ranch, is uh, was just distracting me the whole time I was listening to this for this podcast. With you, that's a better song. Lou. There it is again, that wall of sound. And the boss is grunting like the pig caller at a counting fair auction this is another version of pink cadillac i i guess that was a few years later same kind of foghorn leghorn verse and that cadillac cadillac hurt, 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 and it's shining black <laughs> look just like the dildo that i shoved in my crack in a cadillac <laughs> so we change gears again and bring back the upbeat rock this is based on a twangy, rockabilly-style guitar lick, and when the rest of the band kicks in, the bass rumbles along like a big black caddy, and the piano dances around the rocking guitars over the steady drum beat. Springsteen affects a goofy southern accent, and it sounds like he's having fun as he describes his, the gleaming black Cadillac with El Dorado fins, white walls, and skirts. He name-checks James Dean, Junior Johnson, and Burt Reynolds as famous car drivers, and he calls out to the girl with the tight blue jeans that she's his last chance. The Cadillac Ranch is a sculpture in Amarillo, Texas that shows 10 Cadillacs with their hoods buried in the ground. I had to look that up. So to me, the Cadillac Ranch in this tune is a metaphor for a graveyard, which makes sense since the narrator doesn't want to be taken there. So there's a spot of darkness here, but who cares when the chorus is so damn catchy? Cadillac, Cadillac. And the backing vocals are appropriately ragged and rowdy. Springsteen gets in a short, twangy, and bendy guitar solo, like Howard said, and towards the end of the track, Clemens delivers a sax solo that apes the intro lick. To me, this is just a fun track that lifts us out of the gloom for a little bit. This was the sixth single only released in Europe. The next track is I'm a Rocker. I got a bad mood so I can meet you in a person. When you're wild, so caress is something you can get hungry. Howard, are you a rocker? I I uh I am a rocker. I think yeah. I'm more of a rocker when I'm playing music than when I'm listening to music. But I'm a, I'm a rocker for sure. 
I don't think this song should have been called I'm a rocker, though. It should have been called I'm a singer, because he's just, this is just like, I'm going to show you that I can really sing a lot. <laughs> and, you know, like, every day, every day, it's just, you know, it too too much, uh, too much for me. Um, I also feel like the way that this album is rolling, that Cadillac Ranch and I'm a rocker are kind of desperate attempts to not just be incredibly gloomy as a second album. And they, I just don't think it, I think it just doesn't fit. And to me, it's like, it's fine. I, I, I wouldn't cut it like, but it's, it's really one of the bottom ones that I wouldn't cut. Lou. This is right off of Eddie and the Cruisers soundtrack. The guys that did the music for that movie had to be huge E Street fans. Uh, it's exactly the same music. That's the, nothing against Bruce, but the resemblance is uncanny. That, that came out like two years later, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it was like yeah. Bernie Brillstein and the Beaver Brown Band or something. Like yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure where the boss is going with this one. He's He's not a superhero, spy, cop, but he'll come and save you better than they can because he's a rocker and he's in love with you. I say leave her, be with her narc friends and go tie one on with the boys. Who needs all that drama anyway? The backups sound like um, they're singing, I don't want to hear about it later. I don't want to, baby, I don't want to. Did uh, Van Halen, but there's nothing Van Halen about this at all. Dan. Yeah, the first thing I thought of when I heard this again was this is the blueprint for John Cafferty's entire career. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, it, it's too bad because this is mu a much better song than that Eddie and the Cruiser song. But the fact that they're so close together is when I listen to this, I can't stop thinking about that other song. I wish that that other song never existed. So I didn't think that. But it, <laughs> it's just at this point when I hear that, I automatically think of that other song, you know, and the title is kind of goofy. I mean, but overall, um, it's a really good song that unfortunately is now associated with a bad song. So um, it's not Bruce's fault. And at the time that this came out, it's not his fault that those guys really liked him and ripped him off. But what's done is done. So <laughs> that other song does not exist in my world. So. Max Weinberg beats on those skins while the piano pounds along with them while the strum guitars get pushed way back and there's a low saxophone part, that saxophone fart, that hangs down with the bass to cool effect. Roy Bitten wheels out the carnival organ and gets himself a swirly solo that keeps the energy up and the big gang vocals shout it out, I'm a rocker, baby, I'm a rocker, bet your ass I am. Springsteen also bellows out the vocals and hey, some jerk kidnapped his baby's heart. It's time for Detective Springsteen to get on the case. He's better than James Bond, Secret Agent Man, Columbo, and Kojak. He's going to Mission Impossible this sucker and get her heart back. He's going to take better care of it than that guy ever could. The hand claps follow the drum beat, and this is just the raucous blast of a rocker, summed up by the song title. To me, this is these are like respite songs from the heavy, deep tracks. That's kind of what these tracks function for me, Howard, as I'm listening to the record. The following track is Fade Away. Well, I can't believe what you say. Oh, I can't believe what you say. Cause baby, I don't wanna fade away. Oh, I don't wanna fade away. Tell me what can I 
Lou, what do you say? This sounds like something I'd hear Patti Smith or Elvis Costello sing. I never connected with them uh, to the boss before. Howard mentioned it before, too, I think. I heard Elvis Costello. It's there. It's that offshoot I never paid attention to around that time. The Lou Reed, Patti Smith, Joey Ramone, Elvis Costello. It's, I, it's just a road I never went down. The organ solo sounds like something out of a Brent Midland dead song. But I never liked that version of the dead either. And he sounded like a Muppet when he sang. These vocals have like a Patti Smith, Elvis Costello all over it. It's he's maintaining like unmistakably Bruce Springsteen, though. It's 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 a little too much moan and grunt for me. And it's over a minute too long. Well, like we talked about before, too, Lou, Bruce was enmeshed with those guys. He gave Patti Smith Because of the Night. Yeah. He was on that Lou Reed act, uh, record, and he was supposed to write Hungry Heart for the Ramones. So that CBGB scene, he was... Yeah, I can hear it. Yeah, yeah. Dan? Uh, maybe that's the reason I like this song. It's slower, you know, again, a relationship falling apart. I think, like, when people think of Bruce Springsteen, a lot of times they think of songs like this. Great Van Zant harmony um, that really, really helps the song. Considering the, all, all the heavy stuff that's just happened, this is again, even though it's a slower song, kind of a kind of a respite because it's it's not super nihilistic. You know, it's not things are going to be terrible. But I like the new wave influence. I think or the the punk influence on it. I think I think Bruce. I like the way he takes in those influences and then still is himself. So. Howard. So for me, this song is the mirror song for of Point Blank. Um, they're both atmospheric. They both have a great mood. They both have a great sort of atmosphere of kind of like slinkiness. So in in Point Blank, it's the woman who has fallen away, and in this one, he's the one who's in danger of being disappeared. And he's pleading and desperate to stay in this relationship. So again, like I think we're getting at this point in the album, we're getting all of the sort of aftermaths of um, these emotional connections and these drives and passions. And we're seeing the various ways that things fall apart and the various ways that the ties that bind, uh, you know, come Come, become afraid or bind us away from each other. And uh, I like this song a lot. This one is one of the better ones on the album. It's it's a great mood song, and it does sound kind of more current again, which is always a pleasure. Federici's melodic organ line takes center stage on this, and it maintains a large presence throughout, including an emotionally charged solo with understated clean electric guitars in each channel and sensitive complementary piano work. The drums accent rim shots in the verses again and a backbeat on the chorus, while the bass once again does an R&B slow burn. We've got another breakup song here. The girl tells our boy it's over. She's found someone new. She's been unhappy in the relationship because in her mind, he's not the same guy he was when things were good. But the narrator says, no, no, his feelings haven't changed. He doesn't want to let go. And there's desperation in his voice as he pleads that he doesn't want to fade away, both from her presence and in her heart. 
Little Steven again sings a sloppy backing vocal over the top of Bruce on the chorus, which underlines the sheer desperation our boy feels. It's very effective. You said that, Dan. We're mining similar territory we've heard elsewhere on the record, but Springsteen still finding ways to come at similar subject matter from different angles. This was the second single that reached number 20 on the Billboard Hot 100 chart. The next track is Stolen Car. In the end it was something more, I guess It tore us apart and made us weak I'm driving a stolen car Down on Eldridge Avenue Each night I Dan, what do you say? Wow, this is uh, might be one of the greatest things Bruce ever wrote, and it's just as my opinion. This, the narrator in this, his his relationship is 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 gone so off the rails, and his life has gone so the way he didn't think it would go that he's thought that maybe it's a good idea to steal a car so he might get arrested so that he might be able to feel something. Just super powerful in the way that it's almost cinematic when uh, I didn't really do a great job of explaining the, everything there. But the way that it's laid out in, as the song progresses is it reminds me of like an early 70s, like like Scorsese movie or something about people whose lives are just completely falling apart. And, well, I mean, everything else has gone to hell. I might as well steal a car. And if I go to jail, like whatever. You know, I mean, just getting to that point that the only way you're going to feel is if you do something drastic that is going to hurt yourself. It's just great acoustic guitar and piano. And this is one of the most powerful things I think Bruce has ever written. This is uh, my favorite song on the record. Howard. Yeah, I kind of I kind of agree with Dan. I would. This was not one of my favorites back in the day, but. I think this is a much more so. First of all, music good, solid. Plus, it's on the plus side of the sort of of songs. I think that the con it's where this song really shines and shows Bruce Springsteen to be a much more mature uh, lyric writer is 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 that you know the first part of this song before you get to the chorus, it kind of just sounds like the usual Bruce Springsteen, I'm going to tell you a story with a moral and I'm going to tell you how to feel about these things. But then, so it's like, I met this girl and we settled down and it's like, Oh, the, we're to the river all over again. But then he's, a, does this jump cut in the chorus where you suddenly find yourself not, he's no longer telling you the story. He's just telling you about a moment. Why is this guy in a stolen car? We've, we won't know, we, we can't know, but we know that things have gotten extremely fucked up and we know that their relationship is fucked up and we know that this guy is not in a good place, you know? And so it, it take it, it opens up so much space in the song and bring, you can bring so much more of yourself. It basically like the old, like when you talk about writing, you write, you know, we always say show, don't tell. And this is suddenly he's showing you instead of telling you, and it's very powerful. I also think that then it does this whole other thing because the, the you know, waiting to get caught is not, it could be literally that he's in a stolen car or it could just be that he's feeling like he's just 
not right and this is, hasn't done the right things and he's done how many bad things in his relationship and how many bad things in his life. So, you know, it becomes almost a, it can be almost even be a metaphor and he just wants to disappear. And that's how the song ends. You know, I, I do give it, um, a real respect that I did not have before I prepared for this podcast because I listened to it closely. So I agree with that. And I think it's really one of his better songs. Yeah, and I don't want to jump on your uh, what you're saying, but I, I think that one of the strengths of Bruce as an artist is that he writes material even as a well, he must have been in his late 20s or early 30s that that grows, you know. And as you get older, it actually it's so so well constructed and well put together that you can see these things in a different light the older you get. And I think that's one of his uh, strengths as a lyric writer. I totally agree with that, Dan. Sure is, and sure does. Yep. Lou? Uh, Bruce is working out some shit in the relationship department here. Um, this all sounds like he was fucking around and breaking up with his first wife or partner. Or, but that's all five or ten years later, I think. He was his own prophet. <laughs> think about that. Think of it. Talk about not listening to your own advice. Dude, you could just save yourself millions. Millions. Shit. He's really hammering the I married you for the wrong reasons and I don't love you anymore vibes on this record. He sounds like a guy who's made some bad decisions earlier on and he's getting a taste of something he wants but doesn't own. I'm wondering if driving a stolen car is the feeling he's getting and comparing it to when he's cheating on his present partner. Again, this is really deep shit. You know, one thing I I just thought about is also like how this song reflects to the next album, like Nebraska, yes, where where it's a much sparer, much smaller thing. And like there's even a song, of course, State Trooper, you know, which is like has got a lot of the same kind of underlying feeling where it's just like, I, you know, I'm, I'm I'm a bad man. I've done bad things. I'm in this. This is not a good place. Please do not catch me as. But like built into that is that like this is telling a story of a person where things have gone wrong from a very present moment, as opposed to an external moment where the narrator is telling you about this guy, he's experiencing it. Uh, here's another one. This was written and recorded the day after hungry heart and then re-recorded for the river. When the original, the ties that bind album got shelved. This comes on very sparse and haunting with quietly strummed electric guitar and the piano, almost randomly tinkling around to keep the mood mysterious and stripped down when the other instruments are eventually added the bass timpani and finally the organ the track is deliberately mastered so low that you have to raise the volume to hear what's going on better and springsteen's voice is nearly flat it does rise up one line and it drops back down the following line evoking our narrator's emotional state he lost his wife and their life they made together as they slowly grew emotionally apart from each other and the love drifted away, driven home by her telling him that she read his old love letters to her and they made her feel a hundred years old. The narrator feels dead inside, isolated. He drives away a stolen car at night hoping to get caught but never does. This also could be a metaphor for sure. This is a man who does not give a fuck. He's got nothing to live and strive for, yet he still fears that he'll disappear in the darkness, both literally and emotionally. I've lost count how many nights I felt like this guy. This is another one that just goes straight through me. 
It's another track that's devoid of Springsteen's signature message of hope. And you said it, Howard, you could take this track right off this album and put it on the next one, Nebraska. It would fit right in there. So let's flip the imaginary record over and drop the imaginary needle on disc two, side four in Ramrod. I don't know if I want to flip the the album over. I, I for me, like I think I'm done. You know, like uh, the, <laughs> <laughs> there's first of all, like we're not going to get anything better, and it's a strange album because, like, I I do think that there's a real drop off on this last side. Exhibit A, Ramrod. I liked it better when I heard it the first time as Cadillac Ranch. Like it's not. There's very little that I like about it. It's a car song. How many car songs? We don't. I don't think we need another car song. We've had enough of them already. And the one thing about this song I would say is like, this could be the couple from the river or fade away or point blank or stolen car. Um, but all those years ago before things kind of went south. But you know what? We already saw that. Like, I, I just think this car, uh, this uh, another song that I would just cut. Lou. Yeah, Howard, he likes that Martha and the Vandellas kind of sound, very 50s, early 60s. The double entendre is cute. He's talking about ramrodding. So is it drag racing or getting laid? (laughs) Either one will get you in trouble if you're not careful, boss. Both could ruin a young man's life in one instant after saying, oh, shit. Um, (laughs) Kind of reminds me of Let's Dance by Jim Lee from the the Animal House soundtrack. It's what they played when Belushi did the I'm a zit, get it? And and then they chased him around the cafeteria and started the food fight. <laughs> Dan. You know, this is actually kind of a needed break, I think. Um, after that last song, it's an up-tempo dance number. And, you know, the, the, the organ reminded me a lot of Question Mark and the Mysterians, 96 Tears. Um, I was probably intentional because Bruce is a, a huge garage rock guy. It's not like the greatest song he's done, but considering the placement, it, it's enough to keep me listening to side four as, a, as opposed to turning it off. I don't know if, uh, if after Stolen Car, another super heavy song would have uh, worked in that position. So There's no way I'm not listening to side four. A Chuck Berry-style guitar lick opens this and takes us into another 50s-derived bluesy rock number with the organ doing that simple da-da-da-da-da pattern that grabs your ear. There's subtle boogie-woogie piano, the drum beat's as simple as it gets with hand claps on the backbeat, and that cool-ass low sax that beefs up the bottom end. Sax farts! (laughs) The subject matter is two of Springsteen's favorites, Cars and Girls. He's got a 32-4 with a Roadrunner engine and a hot-stepping Hemi with a 4 on the floor. And he wants to meet up with his girl on Bluebird Street and go ramrodding, driving till half-past dawn. (laughs) When Bruce calls out, Big Man, 
Clemens responds with a sax solo straight out of the 50s. To me, this is mindless fun, a good time party song, another respite song. I just give in and come on, come on, come on. Let's go ramrodding tonight. The following track is The Price You Pay. thoughts damn man you're fucking depressing me i wish i liked this guy better back in the day maybe i would have listened to his lyrics a bit more and learned some more lessons i wouldn't have had to learn on my own nah i've had plenty of warning of what was to come and i still didn't listen to those prophets either god damn it lou getting heavy dan slower more melancholic really really good drumming and piano you know, again, this whole metaphor of, of not being able to get anywhere. The chorus is is really what, what makes this song for me. I really like the chorus. I think it works for where it is on the album, if you're listening in sequence. Howard. Okay, so I think this song is the most enigmatic one on the album. This is like also not only the most enigmatic one, like it's the least comprehensible, the lyrics are the least comprehensible. It's also, I think, a very meta song, which is not something that I usually associate with Bruce Springsteen. It, the, the song sounds like Promised Land uh, off, of, off of Darkness, and he references dark promised land in the actual words promised land are in this song. And like the little girl from promised land is also in this song as little girl. And I think that it also is a song that has the river in it. Again, we have the, another reference to the river. This time it's a boundary and it's a barrier that you will not be able to overcome. You will not. And then, and then there's the whole weird thing of like, I, maybe it's not so weird. I was going to say like a, a biblical reference, but I guess he has Adam raised a cane on darkness too. This song raised a lot of questions for me. I don't actually think it's a great song, but I do appreciate that he's doing something different, at least in sort of how he's playing with his own material and how he's playing with the the album itself. So yes, included in the album, but I don't think it's a song that I would ever reach out to one I'd listen to as a song. Yeah, like Howard said, this has a very similar sound and vibe to the song Promised Land from Darkness on the Edge of Town. This is almost a companion song to it. It's mid-tempo, Weinberg lays back on the beat while Talent, who's been stellar on bass his whole record, underrated in my opinion, throws in very cool passing notes to create a nice groove, while the guitar chords are aped by the piano with a little extra trill as a transitional feel that da-dun-dun-dun-dun, I like that. Federici's part sounds a lot like an accordion, and I wonder if he's playing that or the organ, but whatever, it's a different sound, and I like it. Bruce does his Bob Dylan thing on harmonica, and that also has a throwback feel to the promised land. But to me, this is a song about choices and the consequences that result from them. You make up your mind, you choose the chance you take, you ride to where the highway ends and the desert breaks. Out onto an open road, you ride until the day, you learn to sleep at night with the price you pay. 
Some choices you make in life are hard. Certain paths you feel compelled to take can leave emotional wreckage behind you, and it doesn't always go the way you hoped or planned. Now they come so far and they waited so long just to end up caught in a dream where everything goes wrong, where the dark of night holds back the light of day, and you've got to stand and fight for the price you pay. This is the flip side of the promised land. The reality that that song's hopefulness. Springsteen even references the biblical story of Moses not being allowed to enter the promised land after leading the Israelites there. Even he had to pay the price for his actions. We all do. The penultimate track is Drive All Night. What about this, Dan? One of Bruce's big talents is 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 the ability to kind of invoke what it feels like to be, I don't know, and this is going to sound cliche, but if anybody who's ever been had to drive really late and it's just you in the road and just the dead silence, if you're not listening to the radio and, the, and, and thinking about things that might've gone one way or the other. And then just, he really has an immense talent to be able to evoke that. Every time I listen to this, that's what I think of. You know, I think the line of he would drive anywhere for her, like if she asked him to, and how that, those thoughts go through your head when you think about people you love and also think about things that you haven't done and maybe the times you haven't lived up to that. He really likes songs about driving, obviously, but especially combined with the next song that we're going to talk about, I think this is really powerful. Howard. Yeah, this is um, it's a, it's moving. It's a moving meditation on, you know, what just really wanting to be with someone and really willing to sort of like drive all night to be with them. It's a long vamping emotionally sort of like emotion and build up tune. I usually like those. The one thing is like it's a bit weird. The, again, I, with, with it's funny. Most music I kind of don't care about the lyrics, but Bruce Springsteen, I find it like distractingly present. And just, and when, when the lyrics go wrong, uh, I find it hard to ignore it. So like, I don't really know why it's so impressive that he's even willing to drive to buy her shoes. That seems like a, you're, you're dropping the bar a lot. Like I'm willing to do anything for you. I'll even go buy you shoes. <laughs> that seems not so impressive. The song itself reminds me of the half of the Here Comes the Night song by them, like Van Morrison, you know, like, and and even having night in it, but like the, the, the baby, baby, baby in Drive All Night is the same thing as the yeah, 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 and here, here it comes. I always expect him to go baby, baby, baby from Drive All Night and then into here it comes, here comes the night. Yeah, I do think it's interesting that he has Drive All Night going right into Wreck on the Highway. I think that's a funny joke, except that Wreck on the Highway is so bleak, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Lou? Well, I'm getting a Jackson Brown vibe on this one. Howard, you mentioned him earlier, and that's a good thing. I dig the deep bottom end on Gary Talent's heartbeat bass. Max Weinberg's got that simple rim-knock metronomic rhythm. I could do without the shitty keyboard patch that and wish 
uh, Roy Bitton um, would have stayed with a more Hammond sound. And Bruce is right on the edge of that forced grunt that ever so annoys me. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Oh, 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 oh. He sort of sounds like <laughs> Ralph from the Muppet Band, maybe Gonzo. Clarence gives a soulful sax performance. It all sounds like some derivative prom ballad that ends off the night with the janitor kind of sweeping confetti off the floor, while that last couple still swaying back and forth, holding close on the dance floor. You know, big moose mullins, little Mary Jean. He's going to split her in half later in the back of his 74 Camaro, like trying to force feed a chipmunk an entire banana. (laughs) But right now they're each other's whole world and nothing's going to stop them now. By the end, Bruce is howling like his doctor's got his whole fist up his ass during a prostate check. (laughs) And I get fed up and skip to the next song. I think one of you guys said earlier in the podcast, I can't remember which one of it, which one of you it was and which song it was, but I used to not care for this track, especially when, I, you know, 30 years ago, this would have been my stinky stinker. I thought it was way too slow and way too long. This thing is eight minutes and 33 seconds. But as I've gotten older, I've really come to appreciate it, especially Bruce's vocal performance, which is really what this track is all about. I read that this was done in one take with it building up slowly from the ground floor of the sparse bass and drums to muted guitar licks, to organ lines that swell up and pull back, to piano notes that color outside the lines, building to an excellent emotional Clarence Clemens sax solo that raises the intensity before dropping back to the final verse. Springsteen tries his hand as an R&B crooner, and Sam Cooke and Otis Redding, he is definitely not. But he pours everything he has into these vocals. I've read many different interpretations of the lyrics, but to me, it's about a man who has broken up with his woman, and that reality is killing him. He does have the depth of feeling for her, even if he couldn't express it. I mean, come on, he'd drive all night just to buy her a pair of shoes? That's how devoted he is. And in the second verse, he gets a second chance. They decide to push aside their demons, and our boy is not going to screw it up this time. And by the third verse, he's howling with everything he can muster in his declaration of love and devotion. Through any signs of bad weather, she has his heart and soul. Yeah, it's long, but all right, boss, give it all you got. And that brings us to the final track, Wreck on the Highway. I was riding along through the drizzling rain on a How about this last one, Howard? Well, I mean, you know, you said final track. There's four final tracks on this album. And I think that's one of the most unifying features of this album is that he really likes to put bummers uh, as the last track. I mean, you know, like they're all the songs that are making Aaron cry or are on the last track of each side. (laughs) And here I think he goes too far. First of all, I don't like that suddenly on the last song of the album, he's introducing country sounds like it doesn't fit. I don't know, like suddenly we're having country influence like it just doesn't fit to me. So that's one thing. 
Um, number two, it's just gruesome. Like, and it's not even like interestingly gruesome. Uh, I think it's funny that he, the the guy is driving all like the, the the narrator of Drive All Night is gonna is the guy who had the accident because he's been driving all night and he got into an accident. Um, it's a funny joke, but it, it's just such a gruesome song. And, uh, the one thing about this song that I do like is that the song, the album ends, and now the Bruce Springsteen is the Mister because the 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 kid who's in the car accident. He says, you know, I seen a young man lying by the side of the road. He cried, Mr. Won't you help me, please? So suddenly Bruce is the, is, is not that guy. He's not saying Mr. He's the one who's being, who is the Mr. And I kind of like that. I thought that's, uh, that's interesting. That's fun. That's playful, but, um, too much, too melodramatic, too, it's too much. And it's such a good album. You know, this album is a really overall, a really good album. And this last song doesn't, it, it, it's milking it way too much and it doesn't fit. Lou. This could also be a number of Bruce songs, all of them derivative of this, the river being one. It's like a formula for him. And he's got a few formulas for songwriting and he sticks to them closely, a little too closely for you. It's like sometimes they mesh into the same song in my head. I think somebody mentioned that before. He's warbling on here about witnessing an accident on the highway with a bunch of Indians and uh, one soul flew into his. Oh, wait, no, that was a different poet. Anyway, his he sees this accident as and he realizes that you only have so many opportunities in your life to make the most of it. And it's a positive note to a very depressing record of regret, remorse and helplessness. Dan. I, I'm a sucker for melodramatic type stuff. I, I like the song. Um, I think that uh, I've always thought that this is one of the people that's abandoned their family, maybe from one of the other songs. And ultimately, you know, the message is that you never know what's going to happen. Um, this could be anyone. And to kind of hang on to what you have, at least that ends kind of a, a somewhat depressing record on an upbeat note. You never know if that person on the highway on the side of the road is going to be you. You got to appreciate what you have. And life isn't about escaping, you know, all the time. There are consequences from after you escape, what happens next. Um, so you got to hang on to what you have kind of thing. I am definitely on Team Dan with this song. And uh, Howard, please forgive me because I'm going to get gruesome with it. The organ line feels tense and nervous over yet another rimshot accented R&B groove, another R&B groove. It's almost the same groove we've heard a lot of times in the album. The acoustic guitars and piano are panned to the sides and augment the spooky vibe the track is going for. Bruce is in quiet storyteller mode as the narrator comes across a car wreck and sees blood, broken glass, and a dying man lying on the side of the road. This scene haunts him, and he can't stop thinking about it. I really believe that the meaning of the song is exactly the way Dan described it. It has like a, a, it does have a positive glimmer of, I don't know, I don't say glimmer of hope, but just be thankful for what you have and you know hold on to it. You know, live in the now and appreciate what you have. I remember the first time I heard this song, I froze. And I stared at my tape player because what happens in this track actually happened to me. I was 14, so this was the summer of 1984. 
and I was walking down a hill in my hometown on my way to a local variety store to buy a comic book. I was a comic book geek. When I just heard this horrible sound of metal slamming into metal, I didn't see it happen. So I ran down the hill and there was a small concrete and metal bridge that crossed a small stream, (laughs) a river, that happened to be right out of a turn. So a car just must have lost control, shot straight across and slammed directly into the reinforced steel bars of the bridge. So I get down there and the impact of the crash was on the driver's side and the car was just mangled on that side. And there was just a huge bloody spider web of cracks on the windshield. I walked up to it all nervous and looked through the passenger side window and I saw a man slumped over the steering wheel. And this was 84, so he didn't have a seatbelt on. And his skull was cracked open and I could see his brains and there was just blood everywhere. I couldn't move. I just stood and stared at this guy. I don't even know how long. It couldn't have been too long because other people arrived soon and I heard sirens coming. So at first I just backed away. I started walking away from it and then I just ran home. Fuck the comic book. And I didn't tell anybody at first, but it's a small town. You know, Cheshire, Massachusetts, everybody knows about it within a few hours. And I did end up telling everybody that I saw it. And that scene haunted me for the longest time because, I mean, for years, I'm talking well into my 30s, maybe 40s. I had a recurring nightmare that I'm looking at this car wreck like a movie, like I'm up above and I'm panning down to it. And I see myself dead in the driver's seat. So for years, I had a mild phobia of red cars because the car was red and I thought it would be bad luck or something. So every time I hear this track, I get a just a chill just runs up and down my spine. But it's weird because I love this track and I have to hear it. I have to hear it. It's the only way I can close this album. This album, it gives me a sense of closure. Wreck on the fucking highway. Now that the track by track is finished, we'll go into our final thoughts and album ratings. For you new listeners, rating is the 0 to 5 system, with 5 being a favorite album of ours, all the way down to a 0, which is a dried up river. Dan, what are your final thoughts on the river? You know, a monumental piece of work. Um, Bruce really, I think, where he's coming into his own as, you know, going to be the next big rock star of the next couple years. I My one criticism is that I think it's a little bit too long. I know Joe Strummer once described Sandinista, another album that's too long, as an album you could take out onto a, an oil rig and just listen to for the next six months. This is one of those records. But that being said, it's great. I would give it a four, and I only give it a four because I think it's a little bit too long. Howard? Well, the, the difference between this album and Sandinista is that Sandinista has a lot of different sounds and styles and production techniques, a points of view, travels around the world. It's, um, you know, it's, it's an international kind of like almost the first kind of rock and roll world beat album. This album is weird. It's a paradox because... It's a double album, but it's tiny and claustrophobic and stays in a very limited palette of sounds and production. You know, it it sort of always amazes me that like the story behind it where like he didn't release the Ties That Bind because he wanted to make a broader album with more sounds and more styles. And I'm like, what? Like, I don't understand that at all. I, I think this would have made an excellent single album. 
it is too long or he needed to broaden things out. I think that the highs are very high. I think Bruce Springsteen is, uh, you know, there's a reason why Bruce Springsteen is huge. He, or became huge, he can write hooks and he understands song structure. And when he's not too maudlin and too sentimental, those lyrics can really hit hard. And and again, everyone's entitled. That level of how much sentimental you can tolerate, I think is legit. Other people can tolerate more than I can. Um, I would give it um, a three. Yeah, I think I would honestly give it a three. It's definitely a positive. It's not his best album, um, but it's it's the one that it still has a nice balance of unbridled passion and sort of time world weary loss. You know, it's kind of in that that it sort of perfectly is placed in there, and so I appreciate it for that. Lou, all right, look. Who am I to say this is bad? Reading his lyrics, I can almost identify with the guy. This seems like more of a, a not a, a concept album, but more of like a reflections on a theme. Um, and it, it's what I described before. I'm wondering if, if this is why I keep starting fights with my wife this week. He definitely gets that small blue collar suburban town working class guy down pat. He's got my number. Uh, The regrets of youth, chance not taken, the yearning to have something better after you've made your proverbial bed or dying in it. I I get it, dude. But it doesn't mean I have to like your music. It's just not my cup of tea. I've tried again even in my later years after I got into Pearl Jam and Tom Petty. And I figured I'd give Springsteen another shot. I mean, hey, it, it worked with listening to the dead after I discovered fish and I couldn't stand the dead. But I, I'm really just not a fan. And it's just not my cup of tea, honestly. I'll give it a two and a half because anymore I'd I'd be faking it and I, I hate posers. I'd actually consider some country music over this, but I, I would listen to it gladly over Bon Jovi. I would be open to seeing him live, but I have a feeling that's about 10 years too late. I, I could definitely be wrong. During Bruce Springsteen's songwriting explosion that became the basis for his fourth album, 1978's Darkness on the Edge of Town, he had dozens of outtakes left over, among them Independence Day, Point Blank, The Ties That Bind, Ramrod, and Sherry Darling. By early August 1979, Bruce and the E Street Band cut 10 tracks at the power station, and Bruce sequenced 12 tracks to be released as a single album, The Ties That Bind, and the tapes were sent off for mastering on October 15th. But when they came back, Springsteen changed his mind, saying the songs lacked unity and conceptual intensity and shelved the album. Manager John Landau suggested that it should be a double album, and the band went back to the power station for an additional seven months of recording. When they were finished... Springsteen selected 20 songs out of a pool of 50 to compile the record. And when The River was released in October 1980, with a simple black and white photograph of his face as the album cover, it was a critical and commercial success, giving Springsteen his first number one album and top 10 single in America with Hungry Heart. The album was followed by a lengthy tour of North America and Western Europe in 1980 and 81. On most days, if you ask me what my favorite Bruce Springsteen album is, I say The River. For me, this is Bruce giving you everything he has to offer in terms of style and sound at the time, while deepening his songwriting to incorporate themes he had yet to touch on in his career. The man wasn't resting on his laurels. 
Now, because of its double album sprawl, you can say that it's too long. It's got too many songs, too much filler. And I can understand that point of view. I understand what you three guys are saying. But I see it the way Springsteen intended. It gives you upbeat, good time rockers next to introspective and deeper meaning cuts. And it's like a buffet of moods and textures that touch on every facet of Bruce's roots and influences. The E Street Band is on point as always, and on this album, Steve Van Zant steps up and really makes his presence felt. You hear his voice all over the record, and his musical sensibilities make a mark on these tunes. You can hear the signs that little Steven's in there waiting to bust out on his own. This has stone-cold Springsteen classics next to amusing throwaways, but again, I value it for the full experience. Much like Exile on Main Street, I find something to latch onto with every cut, and it rewards me with each listen. Plus, there are songs on here that connect to me on such a deep personal level that I can't imagine my life without them. I think you guys know which ones they are. Springsteen has a way of doing that, and I think fans who really get them understand exactly what I'm talking about. I give The River a five, and when I say five, I'm not talking about a proverbial perfect album. There is no such thing as a perfect album in my universe. I'm talking about a favorite album, a Desert Island disc, as it were, a record you'll have to pry from my cold, dead hands if you think you're going to take it away from me. Springsteen actually has a handful of albums like that for me. We've already covered two other ones, and this one just might be tops. Now I'd like to thank Dan Houston for coming aboard for the first time on the podcast last minute and diving into the river with us. Hope you had a good time, man. Yeah, man. Thanks. Thanks, guys. All right. Is there anything you want to plug or promote? Me personally, no, but <laughs> I love your show. Fair enough. Thank you. <laughs> and of course, I'd like to thank Howard Mitnick for coming back and giving us his excellent insights. Always a good time. Um, I love I love your show, too. <laughs> thank you. Um, uh, yeah, if anyone wants to, I have 74 episodes of Gateway Music on most podcasts. Uh, anyway, access it whatever which way. Um, I talk about music. I talk about I interview people and ask them about an important gateway experience for music. So often it's albums. Sometimes it's technology. Sometimes it's concerts, uh, instruments. It can just ways that they fell in love with music. So I I, I think that a lot of them are albums. If you like album-related kind of um, episodes, you, you, uh, you can find a lot of good ones in the bank. Yep. Love your podcast. I appeared on it once. We did an Elton John album. And, and you were uh, great. Yeah, no, it was a great show. Hope you come back soon. Yeah, thanks. I hope to be back soon. And that's going to do it for this episode. You can find this podcast on all the podcasting platforms wherever you listen to them. If you like what you hear, please subscribe or follow the podcast and leave us a review. If you'd like to contact us directly, we can be reached at RidiculousRockRecords at gmail.com or also on the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews Facebook page, where there's a link to hear each podcast. We're also on Twitter at R4PodcastAaron and Instagram under R4Podcaster. If you feel the podcast has value and would like to make a contribution to support it, please head over to Patreon and the Ridiculous Rock Record Reviews page and sign up on one of the monthly tiers. Feel free to leave all of your feedback, comments, reviews, and or suggestions at any of those places I just described. We'd love to hear from you. So for the R4 Podcast, I'm Aaron. And I'm Lou. See ya! Through the wind, through the rain, through the snow, through the wind, through the rain, through the... Oh, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs>
Aaron Martell. And I'm Lou Figaro. I'm, wait, I'm echoing. Somebody, is it, I hope it's not me. I just echoed really bad. All right, yeah, take I two. It. I didn't hear it. Okay, take two. Hello there, I'm Aaron Martell. And I'm I did Lou it again. Yeah, no, yeah exactly. I'm really, I'm really okay. hearing something. All right, I can't tell who. Um, well, let me see. Why don't you, why don't, Aaron, why don't each of us one at a time turn off our microphone and then yeah. and just just we'll figure it out that way. Okay. So I'll turn it off first, okay? All right. Yep. All right, I'm going to turn my head. Hello there, I'm Aaron Martell. And I'm Lou Figaro. Okay, there's no echo there, so it's one of them two guys. Um... All right. Why did we both turn it off? Okay, I turned mine back on. Okay, uh, let's let's try this again with uh, with Howard on. Hello there, I'm Aaron Martell. I'm Lou Figaro. Okay, so it's Dan. Um, Dan he, muted. Yeah, I know, but because his it's coming through his mic, the, the echo is coming through his mic. So yeah. I don't. Dan, how are you? Uh, how are you talking? Is, is it, are you like going through your phone? Are you going? Are you speaking into a microphone? Or, what's that? No, I'm just I'm just going through my phone. Okay, okay. You might have it a little bit too close, so that yeah. I mean, I mean, you sound good, but I just I that's the echoing was coming from apparently coming from your your way. So that okay. might be it. Might be just hearing. It might be echoing off. My voices might be echoing back into your phone. Do you understand what I'm saying? So yeah, you don't want you don't. Okay, okay. Are you using a speaker? Or are you just like using a pair of headphones? Just using a pair of headphones. Okay. Uh-huh. Yeah. So it's the headphones going through your headphones. Into your speaker, so just just be you know I, we'll all be aware of that. But that that's the, that's what was going on. So all right, let's try this again. 